The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I love bowls. Who doesn't love a good bowl? Fast Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Carter Worth, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, Snap stock looks like it's disappearing, plunging to an all-time low after a top analyst rips the social media company apart. We will tell you what was in the report that had investors ghosting the stock. Plus, Ben Bernanke speaking out 10 years after the financial crisis, and Guy Adami has some choice words the, the easy former guy. Federal oh, Reserve easy. Chair. You will not want to miss that. But first, we start with Apple launching a crop of new iPhones, a new version of the Apple Watch, and a number of software upgrades. Let's get to Josh Lipton, who is at Apple headquarters in Cupertino, California. Hey, Josh. Melissa, three new iPhone models to choose from. Take a listen to Apple CEO Tim Cook. He was on stage right behind me here talking about these new phones. It's clearly the best lineup we've had by far, taking the breakthroughs of iPhone 10 even further than before and making them available to even more people. So Apple's now going to sell the iPhone 10s and the iPhone 10s Max, 5.8 inch and 6.5 inch OLED displays respectively. 10s is going to start at $999, 10s Max starting at $1,099. Apple introducing a third model too, a new lower priced iPhone 10R, a 6.1 inch LCD display that's going to start at $749 few takeaways from this event. One, it's clear that Apple is targeting a broad range of consumers and markets. Two, um, clear here, I, I would say, uh, third one here, the camera, Melissa, is where the battleground seems to be for Apple and a lot of companies. And three, a question really, is the watch as a true medical device going to win over a lot of consumers? And here's what I mean by those, those three points. One is um, Apple is clearly going after different markets and different consumers. You see three new models just at the high end, different specs, different pricing. Now, there are some tech analysts who say, listen, if you want to keep that iPhone franchise stable, and by stable, let's say, growing in the low to, low to mid single digits, then you should be offering a lot of different products to a lot of different consumers. You saw Cook mention that they're trying to reach more people with these devices. Two, it was really interesting how much time was spent on the camera. Apple's Phil Schiller took the stage, spent a lot of time on the camera, the new camera updates coming to those phones, Apple promising there'll be better photos than ever. We know rivals are spending a lot of time on cameras too, a lot of time, money, and effort. So it seems these tech companies believe the camera is a feature just as important as a lot of other features that people look for, like displays and battery life. And finally, I thought the watch was really interesting. Apple taking the stage and saying, listen, the watch has multiple missions. Yes, it's there to connect you to friends and family. Yes, it's there to help you keep fit. But the core of the of the feature presentation today on the watch was clearly positioning that device as, as a medical device with new features and tools to, for example, detect irregular heart rhythms, FDA approval coming to some of those features. Question is, is that going to be a selling point for most consumers who are out there, Melissa? 
All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton in Cupertino. So did Apple impress today, Guy? Well, obviously it's lost on me. I mean, I think everybody came away. The camera was a big deal. And listen, on the healthcare front, for somebody like me who's at an age now where you have to worry about certain well, things happening, fall, it's instance, a big deal. It'll notify, you yeah, know. Yeah, fall, but I right, can't get up. And it's a lot cooler wearing the thing around your neck. I have an Apple instead of the, to look like a dork, which is, for me, it's very easy to do. In terms of the stock, though, I think it's underwhelming. And we talked about it last night. Jim Cramer will say, don't trade Apple, just own it. And that's fine. That's one way to play it, absolutely. The other side of the coin is, if 240 is sort of the upper end of your target based on valuation, they're going to earn $13.44 next year, 18 multiple gets you that price. Do you want to risk, you know, the upside of 6.5%, 7% for potentially a downside to 180? I think there's a chance in this environment, especially if the rhetoric with China heats up, you're going to see that 180. So you have to ask yourself, do I want to hold up to 240, or am I willing to take some money off the table here and buy it back cheaper? In terms of the products, I mean, we don't need a whole batch of new consumers to come in and buy the phone. We just need the current customers to upgrade refresh. their phones. Right, to refresh. Yeah. We need revenue to continue to grow, which it will, and we'll need average selling prices to remain firm or go higher. Yeah, so I think the good news is that the new XS versions, and they're offered, obviously, uh, the biggest iPhone they've ever had at 60.5 inches, that's going to help ASPs if there is a market for that. I know that there's... Uh, um, some thought that there's tremendous demand, pent-up demand for phones in Asia, okay? So we know what happened the last time that they introduced the plus cycle that was very good for them. Um, I will tell you this, though. I think their lineup right now is very confusing, and there's a lot of different phones, and there's a lot of different price points, and it's really kind of hard to get a sense how to differentiate them. And as you think about how this company is going to guide for the holiday quarter, you have to go back to last year. When they introduced the phones in September, they released um, the X version in November, okay? It was and sloppy. It was sloppy, yeah. and, and they and they're doing the same thing now. So the XS is going to go on sale next week, or it's going to be delivered on the September 27th or so. And then the other one, the one that they're really excited about, this XR, which is the lower price one, goes on sale a month later. So to me, in the near term, you're going to have a lot of really goofy stuff, people gaming what unit sales are going to be like. And we're not going to probably get a sense for it until late January. But I, I'll say, you know, this product cycle, is uh, the new release cycle, is just like last year, in that I don't think all that much is built into the stock. Granted, stock ran 20% off those earnings. But I think it ran off the earnings. I think it ran off the services. And so, and, and good for you, Dan, because you've been pointing out for a long time that the SKUs, and, and at some point that becomes confusing for people. So you're at least consistent on that. I will say, no, and I think, I think you're largely right, except for the fact that they are now going for really everybody. So they continue to get bigger, faster, stronger. There will be people that will always spend that extra money. You're now going to get 512 gigs on your new phones, um, and you get everything you want. You get the stronger case, you get it bigger. But they are trying to compete in emerging markets. And I think having a lower-priced phone that still offers you almost all the bells and whistles is great. The other thing is I, I, I'm surprised you didn't talk about the watch because you've been very, I think, positive on the watch. And I have to say that not just Guy, I think there are people out there that really want those functions. I think there's a lot of people well, that want to know what their AFib uh, concerns might be. And I think people really are going to embrace Apple, unlike other companies. Well, that's great. I mean, it sounds great, but it's only, what, 4% of its revenues yeah. last real, year. Yeah, before, just on the watch, I think this is the killer app for the watch. It, it is the medical awesome. device, okay? Yeah. And so it's FDA approved. Yeah. So if you could ever get a subsidy from insurance companies, that's where this thing could absolutely take off. That's all I want to say. Or, 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 or if you could buy it but with FSA dollars. That's right. You cited yeah. levels that are not good in terms of the asymmetry. A little bit of upside, right? 240 versus downside of 180. Um, what we know is that the stock 
Uh, and we might have a chart here on the screen. The stock at uh, one point last week was trading 25% above its 150 moving average. Every time that's happened over the past five, six, uh, seven years, eight years, it has backed away. In fact, that's the bottom panel of that uh, two panel chart that you see there. And that's exactly what's happened again this time. So, and interestingly, the 240 level you cite, that's higher than the 45 analysts that cover it. Their price target's only 224. So it is asymmetrical, and I think there is more downside risk in terms of the overbought condition than there is uh, upside. Potential. But Carter, I'm looking at your chart, and, and the, the, the pullback when you get to that level on the 150 day and how much above, seems like it hasn't been anything substantial. So that pullback, yeah, I realize it runs out of gas. But it hasn't necessarily, those haven't been big pullback moments. Right, well, what they are, so we're down at peak to trough here over the last six, eight sessions is about five and a half percent. Um, typically, those are 10 percenters. So we've already done half of it, you could say. But still, it's not about the downside. It's about does it have a lot of intermediate upside. Okay. I think that's the main message. Here's a question I want to ask you guys. Would tonight. you rather? It sounds no, like you're no, 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 this is a consumer Apple product. is 16 and a half, right? It's a consumer products company masquerading as a tech company. Look, it's hardware. And, and until otherwise, it's software. And that's great. That's good news. It's higher multiple. But, but there's no question. And that's the whole point. The, the watch is going to get people further tied into the whole ecosystem. So, yes, consumer products. I, I just, think. Oh, go ahead. Well, Dan. just just really quickly. So we talk about staples. We talk about this valuation. A lot of that has to do with the yield and the defensive nature. I think that that over time that that has proven to be the case. But when you think about hardware businesses, like you just said, there's never been a hardware business that's been able to maintain the margins that they had. That has, you know, this company has 90 percent of the profits of the smartphone business globally. So, you know, that is one of the reasons why this thing is traded at a discount to many of its peers, many other uh, industries that have similar sort of monopoly sort of characteristics, at least on the high-end smartphone. So that is the one reason I think that holds it back on the valuation front. One more reason why you will never see this thing trade 18, 19, 20 times. Never. Never. Okay. I mean, 18, you know, listen, I think 18 and a half, 19 is the top end of the range, but it's, 23 and a half where Clorox is, I don't see any compelling reason to give it that type of valuation unless you see something ridiculous happen in the broader market, which I don't think any of us thinks is going to happen. So I do think we're getting, again, that 240 level, given next year's earnings, puts you at about an 18 or so multiple. Well, I think that's sort of the top end of the range. And for whatever it's worth, I mean, on a trailing last 12 months, it's at 19 and a half with, with the cash. That, that's actually yeah. good news. That's the good news for the shareholders because when this one was trading at 12 times, you know, X cash, people were like, it's really cheap. And that's, you know, I, we're going higher on multiple. All right. Our next guest says there's still significant upside in Apple. Let's bring in Fast Money friend Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Welcome back, Gene. Good to see you again. Hi, Melissa. So based on what we know, Gene, and based on your modeling in terms of how many units will be sold for each of these SKUs, um, what do you think average selling prices will do compared to what they are right now? Melissa, that's the real substance. You hit it right there with the ASPs of what happened today. It wasn't about features or the number of products. It really was revealed to us after the event ended, and we started to go through their buying pages and look at what they're charging. They introduced nine new phones that were above the average phone price for this year. And what that means is, as we modeled this out for fiscal 19 for next year, it became 
progressively clear to us that these numbers are going higher and potentially much higher. And let me quickly put it in a perspective is our revised ASPS Mint for iPhone is $791. Now the street is at, as of this morning, was at $765. Uh, but it was difficult to get it below $800. I was reminiscing uh, back to covering Apple five years ago when they would report their quarter and give low guidance and how difficult it was at times to get the model as conservative as they were pushing us to. I had some of those flashbacks as we were working on the model this afternoon. This is a big deal, and I think that is the true mastery of today's event. Nine new different SKUs, three main products, nine mm -hmm. SKUs within that that are just finding ways to increase ASP. Within the phone alone, Gene, I'm, I'm wondering, what are you modeling right now in terms of the uptake of the 10R versus the 10S and the 10 Max? Because as a consumer, you know, you might opt for that lower-priced 10R instead, and, and that could depress ASPs overall. That's what's crazy about how this higher ASP that we've talked about, and I want to go into some of that insight into how we're modeling out by SKU. The, the max, which is, again, three products within that, are going to be about 12%. We think about 15% of those are going to come from the XS, so uh, a slightly different uh, number. But the real product, I think, is going to be this R version, and we're expecting 34% to come from that. Now, if we put all those together, it maps out to a similar percentage of iPhones that come from the latest line every year. It's just above 50%, so it actually maps out historically. But in order to get the ASPs below $800, we had to have this massive adoption of the R. I think the R is going to be a home run. I think that's the correct way to model it. But I think that is the really the depth of the, uh, of, of the opportunity here around ASPs is even with a home run R, it still sets this up as an uh, a, a ASP story over the next few quarters. Hey, hey, Gene, so for the last couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about an upgrade super cycle. We know that these um, upgrades have been elongated, and today's a great example. There's not a ton of innovation. I know that some of the stuff is better, but it's not a ton of innovation. Katie Huberty over at Morgan Stanley says there's maybe 300 million iPhones that are three years or older. But iPhone units are not growing year over year. So is this, you know, like help us understand at some point, are they going to start, like, losing units? some point they will. It's probably five plus years away when some form of a wearable comes out. I think that was another takeaway today is AR is just not advancing as fast as Apple would like it. There needs to be some sort of a wearable. So that's a whole different discussion. But in the current world of a smartphone, I think that you should generally expect the iPhone to be between zero to five percent unit growth. It's not very exciting. The broader smartphone market, as you're talking about, is declining. So fractional market share gains. But the reason why this story can keep moving higher, and I think when you're talking about the multiples early, I'm definitely in Melissa's camp, is that this has upside even the multiples that we were discussing, 20, 20 even higher than 20, is because if you take this approach of a stable 0 to 5% iPhone unit growth, and even we're going to have some nice ASP improvements over the next year, but stable ASPs, I think that, along with services, are going to be enough for investors. And so uh, even the big picture here, Dan, is even in a, uh, a not a great growth market, I think they can still grow the iPhone in that low single-digit number. Gene, always great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. All right.
Well, I'm on the stock, and, and despite the move that it's had, this is one of those times where I actually feel very comfortable staying along the stock, especially in a market that I, you know, I'm less confident on, frankly. Uh, and so what these guys are talking about, really, no one's overly critical here. It's about being tactical, and I choose not to be tactical with Apple. I've been tactical over the years, and frankly, I've left a lot on the table. So relative to the broader markets, Carter, does Apple look any better in terms of the chart? Well, I mean, Apple is, put it this way, if you were to look at a relative performance, it basically made no relative progress in eight, nine years, and just this last three, four months has broken out above its relative peak. So to that extent, you could say this is just the beginning in terms of outperformance relative market. But day to day, where money is made and lost, it's my judgment anyway, that it's a bit ahead of itself. None of what we said was an indictment of Apple. No. If we all sat here and say, buy it with our hand over, then we'd have 17 minutes of sort of dead air, as they say on the they TV. Will, and that's yeah. not really good for anybody. So we're trying to point out, to t if you don't want to be tactical, that's fine. Jim Cramer says it all the time. Own it, don't buy trade it. However, if you feel this is an opportunity, I do think, to Carter's point, it's gotten a little ahead of itself. And there's maybe 7% upside to, to 240. I think the downside is down to maybe 180, 185. That's your risk reward. And good luck with the EKG, by the way. I mean, ECG, you know, you make whatever. fun of me, whatever. you get older in life and you have to do these things. You'll get there someday, Weisenheimer, I hope. And they're the same age, basically. But anyway, Dan. <laughs> so, so, so to your valuation point, and this would be the best story, if, and I know there's a lot of analysts who speculated this, about how do you value a recurring revenue stream? So you attach the services, you attach iCloud, you attach a monthly fee for the hardware, right? Take the ASP out of it, in a way, because we know that ultimately the hardware, they're going in this R route, that's the lower-end phone. At some point, you know, people are going to start thinking about these higher-end phones that they do like a laptop. You don't replace them every three or four years or so. So to me, I think if you could have an Apple Prime lump a lot of different services, music, iCloud, oh, all that stuff like together. A membership. In your phone, yeah, that's the sort of thing that people would start saying. That's, that's how you revalue this company up because avenue revenue per user would be the highest on the planet for any that's product. That's actually an interesting thought, Dan. Well, oh, did actually. I say that? Surprisingly. <laughs> uh, coming up, <laughs> something's got to give. U.S. markets are hanging tough, but Asian markets getting crushed. How will it all end? The chart master here has one interesting theory. Plus, Snapshare is plunging to an all-time low as the top analyst slashes his price target on the falling social media stock. Is it time to ghost the stock? And later, Guy Dami here steaming mad over something former uh, chair, Fed chair Ben Bernanke said to Andrew Ross Sorkin today. You won't believe what it is. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Snap sinking nearly 7% today, falling to a fresh all-time low. This move comes after BTIG's Rich Greenfield downgraded the stock to a sell rating, cut the price target to just 5 bucks in a note today. Greenfield citing a lack of innovation, low quality ads, and a decline of daily active users is just a few of the reasons for this downgrade. He also raised the prospect of a big capital raise. The stock down more than 35% just this year. Is there any hope for a rebound, or is this story over, Dan? Well, it's definitely on, you know, hit the pause button here. And, you know, the, I guess the interesting comparison would be to Twitter. And we all saw Twitter as obviously one of the first pure plays after Facebook, who was an upstart. You know, this is a company that literally Snap has two times the daily active users uh, in the U.S., that Twitter has, and yet Twitter is, you know, obviously turning a profit here on an adjusted basis. They've grown sales faster than most companies we've ever seen go from zero to two and a half billion dollars. And so the problem with Snap is they just haven't figured out how to monetize their user base, and that's the big problem. We saw this with Twitter for a long time. It was trading in the teens below its IPO price for a long time, and then they kind of figured it out. So at some point they're going to turn it on. I don't know if they're going to be able to do it by themselves. It may take some broader and partnership. We saw it in Facebook, right? Yeah. Facebook wasn't able sure. to monetize, then yeah. finally right. gapped up. But this one's not showing at some point the life that it needs to show, whereas at this point, Twitter had already started to recover and Facebook as well. It's taking a little too long. Well, first of all, you know, Facebook, social media is not doing so well anywhere right now. So, I mean, the, the stock, um, I think, is underperforming because, frankly, if you can't outperform Facebook in an environment where Facebook, to me, is existentially challenged, it's going to be a tough time. Again, second quarter DAUs were down 3%, first contraction ever. They've had major executive losses. Strategy officer just recently left. Um, granted, ARPUs are better and they're more profitable. But this sounds like, I mean, remember when Twitter started, you know, flatlining and even yeah. slipping a little bit on their DAU group? Took the market a long time to even really even care about their profitability. And Greenfield points out they're burning cash. And at some point, if they need to do a capital raise and the stock is trading the way it is, it's going to be much harder and harder to do. In my, in my opinion, there's no, and we've said this, they're demo. Listen, I'm not their demographic, clearly. No, none I don't of us here are. None of us here are. On there application. And, like, the big tongue and, it's, you know. But it's our kids. We all have it, kids. But, it's, but it's they're also not, 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 not all the time. They're not Let's in a position to really spend the amount of money they need to make a difference, right? Their demographic doesn't really work for them. At a certain it, point, I think they figure it out. But do you want to start to play stock market here? I don't think you do. I'd rather buy it on a breakout to the upside. There, is. Is that, is that, there you are. That's nice. not me, Tim. That's Andy. Oh. Anyway, that's not that's Dan, you're a millennial. Oh. I mean, do you use it? Well, here, here's the big problem. Facebook <laughs> went after these guys about a year ago after the, with their stories, and they just killed it. They absolutely killed it. And I have a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old daughter. That is their demographic, and they're using Snapchat you increasingly yes, less every day. And Instagram is the thing. So this is all about Facebook, even though Facebook's not particularly doing well. Anyway, options traders are seeing more declines ahead, more pain. Yeah, so, so what are you looking so, at? So interesting uh, price action today, obviously, or, or options action. Um, you know, put volume was two times out of calls. And there was a lot of closing call sales. So people monetizing what could have been hedges or bearish bets. But there was one trade that kind of caught my eye. There was accumulation of the October 8 puts. About 8,500 of those traded for about 20 cents. A bit of a lottery here, but really just playing for a move back below, or well, actually making new lows, um, down at 70, 80. And this could be a cheap way to kind of stay in your name, at least from premium turns, if you're long this stock or you're just trying to hang in there a little bit. Right. And listen, what we just from a technical setup, what we know a breakout is, is a stock that contends with a former high and then exceeds it. A breakdown is a stock that gets to a former low. And today it broke and dropped on heavy volume to a new low. Breakout, breakdown it goes on all the time.
presumptively, there's more to go. So very OA feel this to the right show tonight. Right here I mean, is OA in action. It's Wednesday and it's OA you know action. It's good. Preview. I got yeah. it's, yeah. it. When it's the, good, it's good. As it's is the full show, which you can catch Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, it's being called a monster hurricane. Florence is approaching and uh, might wreak havoc on the East Coast, the southeastern East Coast. Let's bring, we'll bring you the latest details. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. No, actually, it's just shares of hot pot stock Tilray. But Potmaster Tim Seymour says it's time to take profits, and he'll explain why. Plus, Bernanke, Adami, two men, one beef, and a rant that could go viral. And that's when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Asian markets getting crushed, having their longest losing streak in over a decade. Let's get to Bob Pisani at the New York Stock Exchange for the details. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. Is the long emerging market sell-off finally getting close to ending? CNBC has confirmed the United States is in the early stages of proposing a new round of trade talks with China in the near future. Now, that's helped sentiment, but it's been a nightmare for overseas investors in the last few months, particularly in Asia. So what do we have? We've got a rising dollar. We have trade and tariff wars. Then throw in a few countries like Turkey that have high government and corporate debt levels, much of it denominated in dollars. Ouch. And you have a perfect storm for a bear market in emerging market equities. And in fact, with China's Shanghai market, 30% off its 52-week highs. It hit just in January. Hong Kong's 26% off the 52-week highs. Turkey's 24%. Philippines close. They're down 17%. Indonesia and Korea are also off their highs by double digits. Now, the benchmark MSCI Asia Pacific Index, which, by the way, excludes Japan, fell for a 10th straight day. All right, it's ugly. But it's not unprecedented. You know, after the financial crisis, emerging markets generally outperformed the U.S. market for a number of years. But that began to change about 2014, late 2015. That was another bad year. That was when the China boom lost some of its luster. China went up big and then down. Still, the performance gap is very unusually wide. Look at these numbers. Asia is certainly cheaper and oversold. And all other things being equal, we may be near a bottom, but that's the problem, all other things being equal. Whether it's worth buying Asia and emerging markets on a mean reversion trade depends on your view of other things, like the dollar, and on trade, and particularly the later performance of the U.S. markets later this year. So if the U.S. stock market sees any notable drop in the next few months, 
that will certainly create a risk-off environment in other markets. In all these emerging market stocks, they could fall even more. Look at the outperformance here of the U.S. markets versus those emerging markets. So this is a tough call about whether this is the right time to buy them. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob. Thanks. Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange. Chartmaster has made his way over to the plasma. He says there's even more pain ahead for Asia. Carter, what are you seeing? It looks that way. Um, I first wanted to just talk about the whole concept of why 20% is not a bear market. Um, this is the Shanghai Composite over the past, well, you can see here, 2003 to 2018. So think if we applied that rule. I mean, that would then imply or, or be said that we had a bear market here in 2004, and then we had another one in 2009, and then we had another one in 2011, and we had another one, and then we had another one. That's patently ridiculous, yes? In fact, if we go to the next screen, it means that these were all bull markets when it went up 500%, and then it went up 100%, and then 40, and then it was another. There have been one bull, one bear, we've had a second bull and bear. Let's look at it. What we know is this, that this was essentially a bull market all through here to the peak, the commodity peak, that this was a bear market, that this was a second bull, and that we are now in a second bear. The 20% thing, nonsensical, stay away from it. More importantly, how much worse could this get? If you just draw a simple trend line, my hunch is that we come down and we find this line. We've been here a few times. It implies another 6 to 8% could happen overnight. This is a highly volatile kind of thing. But emerging markets in general, and Shanghai specifically, not good. Should we invite Carter back over I mean, to the yes, desk? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Just kidding. Carter, come on back. <laughs> Sam, what do you say? Well, I, I think both Bob and Carter hit on some very important things. When, when If the U.S. has been flailing, and, or I should say, let's put it this way, the U.S. has been outperforming, and at some point, if the U.S. gives back ground, it's not going to help China and emerging markets. They're going to sell off even more. They will underperform on the downside, I think, actually, relative to what they've done. Um, the bottom line here is, I think that the fundamentals don't really uh, reflect where I think the markets have moved. And you've underperformed. It's underperformed EM to the S&P by 20% since April. I mean, this is an extraordinary time. Um, I am an EM you know, long-time investor, I am not running back into emerging markets here because, first of all, I don't know the outcome of this trade war. And because this is not your classic trade war, and they're probably all different, but this, to me, is really about China 2025, and I think we're going to be digging in our heels for a long time. I don't know the protocol here. Am I, am I allowed to ask Carter a question since sure. we brought him back? Sometimes that's taboo. So I am. Oh, we didn't goodbye the guest. I, mean, I don't know, Tim. That's why I said today. I don't know the protocol. The it's different today. Today. Anyway, what's your question? My question is this. Are you surprised... What needs to give? Does S&P need to give to the downside? Are you surprised we haven't seen a bigger sell-off, any sell-off for that matter, well, in the S&P? That's, that's the great question, right? When you have bifurcation, and we have it globally, most aggregates have rolled over while the U.S. continues higher. We have it internal to the U.S., right? Financials have rolled, a lot of industrials have rolled, and certain parts of the market. Bifurcation almost always is resolved by the weak having a final capitulatory low, that would be a sort of a dump in EM, and the strong ones succumbing. And we're seeing a little bit of that in Apple, a little bit of that in Amazon. So this is a normal conclusion, and it should, in principle, be the same thing with U.S. relative to... Yeah, but, but what I think is really fascinating from an economic perspective is that no one is sitting here thinking that this could be like kind of like the canary in the coal mine, that every major equity index outside of the U.S. is down on the year, and specifically the ones that we're talking about that have much higher growth at a time where we are so focused on printing two consecutive 4% GDP quarters when a lot of economists see dramatic slowdown in the back half of the year or the start of 2019 in, in the 
U.S. So what if all this equity weakness, what if all this debt weakness, what about the dollar that stayed firm? It's not rallying right now, and some are calling it for it to go lower. What if it really means that we're going to see a global slowdown? A big part of the bull market in 15 and 16 was about this global synchronized recovery. Well, we recovered. So maybe now we're coming back uh, in globally, and maybe these equity markets all around the world are telling us that, and we're just not paying attention. A lot of those local uh, those equity markets are actually up in local terms, not in dollar terms. So, I mean, they're not all going straight downhill, but I agree with you. I'm watching the PMIs. You have negative 50, so contracting PMIs in Hong Kong and other parts of Asia. It all is right. to be concerned. Coming up, the Tilray rally just won't quit. The cannabis stock is now at 500% since its IPO. But the move is Tim Seymour sounding the alarm. He will tell us what has him so worried. Plus, Hurricane Florence is fast approaching the U.S. and it's being called a monster storm. We'll go live to the ground for the very latest. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. This daunting image you're seeing is Hurricane Florence from cameras on the International Space Station. Look how big that thing is. Our Contessa Brewers live in Georgetown, South Carolina, waiting in the calm before this monster storm. Contessa. Yeah, it's a lot prettier view down here, but a million people under evacuation orders roughly in this area, Melissa. And United has announced it is canceling all flights starting tomorrow for the area airports here at the port of Georgetown. This is a uh, historic harbor walk right along the waterfront, and a lot of the business has shut down entirely. In fact, you see this towboat U.S. right here? This guy who's ridden out a lot of hurricanes has already towed five boats out of the way of any potential storm surge, and he says he's riding out the storm to be available to do debris removal after the storm goes by. Let's tell you about some of the big business here. Port of Charleston will also close down tomorrow, won't reopen until Sunday. And we know that Boeing has sent 6,000 workers home so that they can evacuate. BMW was moving thousands of cars out ahead of the storm, trying to get them off dry dock before it's not so dry. And we watched that car carrier move off to sea. They're heading toward the Panama Canal south so that they miss the storm entirely. We also know that there are um, automobile plants like Mercedes-Benz, which just started manufacturing a Sprinter model this month that has shut down. A Volvo facility, which just opened in June, has shuttered its doors waiting for this storm to come in. So it's bad news for big business. Here in Georgetown, International Paper, Liberty Steel, and CSX all have big facilities here. But for now, it's just basically a ghost town at this point, guys. One more note, take a look at the big box stores, Home Depot and Lowe's. Week to date, Lowe's up 4.5%, Home Depot up 2 and 3 quarters. Seeing some movement there because of Hurricane Florence. All right, Contessa, thank you. Stay safe. Contessa Brewer in Georgetown, South Carolina. What kind of impact do we expect from the hurricane? Contessa highlighted the move in the big box stores. Obviously, that's the place you go to buy your plywood and generators, et cetera. Generac is another mover uh, this week on the storm. Well, Home Depot's just been an absolute monster. But, I mean, it's been a monster prior to this monster storm, so I don't think anything's necessarily changing. Maybe you get some, and, you know, I don't mean to be glib, but you're going to get, obviously, some tailwinds on the back of that for Home Depot. But Target, to me, if you want to talk about big box. I mean, look at their last quarter. I mean, comps were up 6.5%. The street was much lower than that. They beat on EPS. They beat on revenue. Their margins are hanging in there. And you have to ask yourself the following question. Does Target make sense at close to 16 times when Walmart's close to the 19? So I think just on valuation in this environment, Target makes sense. Nothing to do with big box, but I mean, looking at the lumber futures in the CME, I mean, no movement at all. In fact, making new 52-week lows today, um, down to where they were in 2013, down 40% from their peak in May. You would expect some sort of uh, storm-related bounce, nothing.
Yeah, and again, that what we were seeing in lumber and lumber prices before all this, though, was a lot of concern on trade, and we've yeah. been hearing about this. So, um, you know, if you look at the insurance companies, largely, you know, they are the ones that people point out how big of a loss is it going to be. They have not been trading well, period. So, you know, if you think that they're, they've got more room for exposure, uh, I'd say, you know, Hartford is the most interesting because on a relative basis to, to Chubb and Travelers, it actually trades quite cheap. They made a recent acquisition. The Navigators deal is, a, is accretive. So if these things get sold off on this news, typically, again, these guys have, have underwritten and have, have laid off a lot of this exposure, I actually think they're worth buying. When the retailers report, you got you to gotta assume that they're going to cite storm impact as a negative impact for a lot of the stores. Yeah, so that, that's a really great point, and that's what I was going to actually add. We've seen this in the past with, during bad storm seasons. It's not really great to be disruptive and back to school into the holiday season. So depending upon how many we see, how many different regions we see, that's where we've seen the impact before. Um, but it sounds like back to school got off to a good start. Coming up. Hot, hot stock. Tilray is soaring, but the cannabis king, that's Tim Seymour. Mm. Sounding the alarm on the huge move, Tim will tell us what's got him so worried. Plus, Guy Adami doesn't have many enemies, but when it comes to what former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke said this morning, we've never seen him so mad. That and much more. Wow. Fast money he still looks, ahead. You know what? Yeah, scary. Welcome back to Fast Money Time for a buzzkill. Check out shares of Goldman Sachs. The stock is down 10% this year. Just posted its longest losing streak since the company went public in 1999. It is the second worst performing Dow stock of the year. What's wrong with Goldman, guys? They're getting away from proprietary trading in a major way now, and they're focusing things on fee-based businesses. And quite frankly, they're not going to get the same multiple. I'll say again, I think Goldman should be trading mm -hmm. a lot higher on price to book. If you put a 1.8 multiple on their book value, you get about a $320 stock. But given the fact that they're getting away from their core competency, at least what's been over the last 10 years, you have to wonder... Do they deserve that 1.8? I still think they do. But the fact that now there's, there's rumblings that they're not going to get into cryptocurrency, they're not going to have that Bitcoin desk that screams to me they don't want to be in any business construed as proprietary or risk-taking. I mean, the thing is this, is it specific to Goldman and Morgan Stanley's under just as much pressure, mm -hmm. big asset managers like T. Rowe and BlackRock all rolling over? I don't know if it's Goldman. I think it's just the problem that rates are stuck and that these operating businesses aren't what they could be. Yeah, except for that Goldman has really underperformed the XLF. And if you look at it, you know, to its peer group, and what is its peer group? Because the XLF isn't necessarily, it's, it's got a lot of money center banks. I mean, this is, I think, maybe Guy's point, too. I mean, ultimately, Goldman Sachs is not only not what it used to be. And, and, and can't be what it used and, to be. And can't be what it used to be. But, it, but it, it doesn't have the same exposure to the economy that some of these other money center banks might. The question I ask you, Guy, because you work there, is do you think that the culture is gone? Now, was, that's, that was always what defined Goldman Sachs. That's a great question. So I was there a long time. I mean, I'm old, as I pointed out a number of times tonight and over the course of the few years I've been doing this show. So, you were interned for Mr. Goldman, right, back in the day? Yeah. Funny you should say yeah. that. And Sachs at the same. They were great guys. <laughs> we used to go to Nathan's, as it turned oh, out, for hot dogs. Okay, fair anyway. With that said, when I was there, there were 6,000 people in the firm. I think uh -huh. they're close to 40,000 people in the firm. To answer Tim's question, can't. you can't maintain right. a culture with that rate of growth. Okay, so real quickly, the price action today in the whole group, I think, was horrible especially in a morning where Citigroup CFA, uh, CFO kind of uh, gave a kind of a smile boost to some targets there. The stock did open up 3%. It did close towards the lows of the day. I think Goldman trades horrible. Uh, you know, J.P. Morgan, you know, is one of the only major U.S. banks that's actually up on the year. That and Bank America, a few percent. I think Jamie Dimon kind of taking sights at the president. I think these are the sorts of things that make me less positive on this group that should be acting much better. I think the XLF at 28 bucks looks, like looks like a 
clear shot to 26 between now and Would the Would that keep you away from J.P. Morgan stock here? What Jamie? Maybe, done maybe not, because the outperformance is pretty impressive. Oh, oh, just that in particular. Yeah. But I think the whole group acts really yeah. bad. Oh, the comments. His comments yeah. about running for president or how he would fare in a, you know, toe-to-toe -to -toe battle. So. Uh, anyway. Ten years ago this week, the financial crisis kicked into high gear. And earlier today, CNBC's Andrew Ross Sorkin interviewed former Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, former New York Fed President Tim Geithner, and former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke at the Brookings Institute in D.C. to discuss how they handled that period. And Bernanke said something that Guy got a, he got a little heated over. Mm. So we thought it'd be perfect time to uh, for the game we call not so fast. Oh, can Here's you tell me the rules, please, Mel? Here's how it works, just to remind you. We're going to play a clip of the interview. Whenever Guy Adami's heart desires, he's going to jump in, interrupt by saying, not so fast. You'll see the interview stop. The timestamp will go up. And that's when Guy will drop some knowledge about whatever Mr. Bernanke is saying. All okay. right. Are I you ready? I, no, ready? I, I hope right. so. Let's roll the tape. It's not really a fair question, obviously, because you know we didn't let the students grade themselves usually. Not so fast. Stop it. Why is it not a fair question? That is a fair question. This is remember the ban ten years after? Well, this is ten years after. And I'd like to change the world as well. That's one of their I'd songs. I'd like to change the world. Yeah, ten years after. But you know what? It's a fair question because over the course of ten years, you could absolutely go back and say, I can grade what we did ten years ago. Mm -hmm. If it was ten minutes after, it's not a fair question. Ten years after, absolutely a fair question. Andrew Ross Sorkin is spot on. Roll the tape, Mel. I mean, my general sense, you know, we, we didn't anticipate the full, when we had, all of us had various concerns about the financial system, about the economy. None of us anticipated the full ramifications and extent of the crisis, and so in that respect, we were late. Um, we then responded very aggressively. No, I not think, so oh, fast, not so fast on the aggressively. Oh. Yes, they did respond very aggressively. Yeah. But at that point, you have no choice. It's when you choose to go to battle, you do it all in. You're either all in or you're all out. So they had to act aggressively. So to throw that in there, there was no choice but to do exactly what they did. My problem with them is not what they did. It's the duration with which they did it. Way too long, in my opinion. Continue to roll the tape. Overall, we were successful in stabilizing the financial system. And there was a paper given here yesterday about comparing how quickly it happened, at what cost, how quickly the economy recovered. And generally speaking, we look good compared to other advanced economies, to other countries and, that have had crises in the past. Um, I think where, you know, we didn't succeed, obviously, and, 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 and uh, Tim already alluded to that, is that, you know, we didn't persuade the country, generally speaking, that what we were doing was necessary. Right, no, 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 not so fast, not so fast. I would push back and say where they didn't succeed is they didn't see or they didn't realize or they didn't bring out what the unintended consequences were going to be. One of the many unintended consequences, in my opinion, corporate governance in this country got lazy. Why? Because money was cheap. They could borrow money cheap. They could buy back their stock and they didn't have to focus on the core you're specifically businesses. specifically talking about QE. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the bigger problem, though? So the problem was showing up a financial system that was in disarray. And so, they did and that. So why stay with it 10 years after the fact? Well, it's, look at every other central bank in the world. Our Fed is so much farther ahead of removing stimulus than every other central but bank. But we shouldn't did. compare ourselves I mean, to every other central bank in the world. And I think one of listen, again, you can't prove and you can't, it's counterfactual stuff. It's hard to get into. I happen to think, though, if they had stopped it a year in, we'd be further still, along, uh, much further along tape. than we were. Continue to roll the tape. Let's just go right I firmly believed it was. And so that communication issue, I think, is, is still out there. But we did respond aggressively to the crisis itself and, and did bring it under control pretty quickly. You've been critical of Mr. Bernanke for a you, long you, time. You think? 
I have been. a long time. No, I think people champion is, you know, he's going to be the great hero of the 21st century. Listen, the 21st century is it's far from being over. I think there's a chance he becomes one of the great villains of the 21st century for exactly the things we're talking about. I don't think any of the problems of 0809 were necessarily solved. I think that they got moved and they've been Why masked by Why would you blame Yellen more than Bernanke at this point? I think it started. I mean, how does he win? Because, he I mean, won the weekend that they saved of basically the, our way of living, that weekend and a few weeks after. And then I think they could have gone into overdrive and, and ratcheted things back up, in my opinion. But you had their, they, their job isn't to save the markets. Their job was to save the economy. Two entirely different things. Not really, because I think the, the wealth effect, thing. they targeted no. the wealth effect. They, they, no, they absolutely targeted household the wealth, wealth and, So and the wealth effect and, helps and they, and 5 to 8% of the people in this country. What about all the people on fixed income that saw rates go to zero? What, what do you think they're saying about Chairman Bernanke? Hey, look, um, the bottom line is that was probably Chairman Greenspan's fault. I mean, 100%. there was so much cancer in, in this country on the books of, of the private sector that needed to be moved over to the public sector. And, and ultimately, I'm not sure what the Fed should have done. Bottom line is, we're still trying to remove that stimulus guy. Yeah. It's not easy. And in fact, that's the whole problem. I mean, this was the greatest scientific financial experiment of all time. And it's not We over. don't and, know and, how it's going to turn out. No, <laughs> but, but to have ripped the rug back from under, if anything, Bernanke was a student of history and understood that the Great Depression was formed because central banks didn't step in with enough liquidity and actually overwhelm the problem, which, you know, that's my view. It's a good argument, though. Good, good heated debate here. Dan's, Dan's not Dan in it. I, I think Guy's about. wrong and Tim's right. Oh! Wow, that came out of left field. That's yeah, a change. All right. So, so it's nice to be on Dan's side. Coming up, Tilray blazing higher since its IPO, but has it gone too high too fast? Or Cannabis King will break, break it down and break down when to take profits. Plus, check out the Kramer cam or sneak peek into the Mad Money studio. You've heard about the Cloud Kings, but there's Jim anointing the Cloud Princes. Who is next in line to rule the throne? Find out at the top of the hour. We are live at the NASDAQ market site. More Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tilray shares are on a tear, jumping another 10% today. But has it run too far too fast? A resident cannabis king, Tim Seymour, is over at the Plasma with his breakdown of when it's time to take profits in a soaring pot stock. Tim. Yes, hey, Mel, it absolutely has run too far too fast. Again, we're up 500% since the IPO, and why is that? Well, yes, there's this whole strategic dynamic. These guys have some of the great brands in the industry. These guys have an international platform. These guys have major private equity investors behind them that know how to work the capital markets. But bottom line is, this stock's gotten way ahead of itself. I think this is actually a significant short squeeze. I think if you look at the borrow on the stock, it's about 350%, which means, you know, it's going to be impossible to put a short position on if you can get it. And it's at an 18% short interest. So bottom line here, that's also what's happening. I think this is a squeeze into options expiry. This is not about fundamentals. And in fact, what I worry a little bit about here is that while um, I think the industry is rightly evaluating where there are strategic opportunities right now, there's a lot of both investors and, and, and brokers and people in the industry that are writing letters and that are trying to push stocks higher and say, hey, your company, you should be merging with these guys. You're not really playing around in what has been this bonanza. I want to see my stock higher. It feels a little bit like J.T. Marlin, if you know mm. what that reference is. So I think you have to be very careful. And I just want to point out this chart. I mean, if you see this, see where we IPO, again, this is that 500% move. Let me clear all that stuff. My goodness. It's hard to see what's going on. Okay. So bottom line, what you can see is we've made that move. This, to me, is where we've been essentially in euphoria land. 
This to me, which is somewhere around $62, $63, is fair value on the stock. And that's fair value based upon production out three years on an EB to sales. If you listen to Vivian Azer, Cowan is one of the great analysts in the sector. She's got a $62 target on the stock. That to me puts that stock in line with Canopy, which is the big gorilla in the room. So if you want to look at valuation, that makes a lot more sense to me. But we've gotten very frothy here. All right. Thanks for that, Tim. Up next, Final Trades. Final trade, Tim. Great discussion on Apple tonight. I stay long. Carter. GLD, gold. Dan Ethan. Uh, XLF, I'm a seller here. Guy. I got a little uh, flabbergasted. Are you, are you calm segment. now? Well, are you calm? Flummox. Yeah, I'm Flummox. sorry. I apologize yeah. for that. Discovery Communication, that comes out D-I-S-C-A, Mel. All right. I'm Melissa Lee. Thanks so much for watching. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.